You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is episode 51, and this is Brian McClanahan, your host. And this episode covers the week of November 14th through 18th, 2016. Glad to have you back on the program. Just want to remind everyone that we do exist by your generous contributions alone, so please consider a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute. Uh, You can also follow us on uh, Facebook, follow us on Twitter, like our YouTube account. Uh, Please share our information on your social media accounts. It's the only way we can disseminate our our information and our material to the wider public audience. So if you like our website, if you like this podcast, if you like the things we do, then again, please consider a donation. Uh, It will help us keep these things going, help keep the lights on, so to speak. So that said, we've got a really great week, and it's all under the umbrella theme of the election uh, that was held last week on November 8th. And everything that we had this week had in some way, you know, some way applied to that, to that election and the outcome of that election and the aftermath of that election. So um, it's, uh, it was, of course, a, a monumental shift in what people thought was going to happen. If you listened to all the pundits before the election, it was uh, quite clear everyone thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win in a landslide. But, of course, Donald Trump won the election. And then, of course, we have the aftermath and what people are saying about that. So the first piece we had for Monday, written by uh, Jack Marcourt, uh, who, again, is our resident scholar in Japan, uh, he uh, reiterated something that I had written last week on uh, Cal Exit, but talking about the issue of California secession uh, and that um, this is something that's actually been uh, under the surface for a little while now. Um, in fact, uh, even before the election, it seems that there was um, a group called Yes California, which had discussed putting a statewide referendum on a 2019 ballot calling for the legal secession of the state of California from the union. So this was already happening last year before the election. So now we're talking about California secession. We're talking about Oregon secession, Washington secession. And I find the really interesting thing about this is that the newspapers, the the public press on the West Coast has been very open about supporting this in many ways. They've even had maps about what a uh, future republic of the West Coast would look like and the economy. If anyone in the South was to do this, the immediate cry would be racism, neo-Confederacy, all those other things. And so here we have a situation where uh, this is now being discussed. And of course, no one is saying those things. Why? Because supposedly these leftists have the cover of being just good people. And us Southerners are not good people, so we can't talk about self-determination. Of course, at the Abbeville Institute, we're all for this. I mean, if California wants to secede and exercise its self-determination, its right of self-determination, then it should have the right to do so. The people of California, if they don't want to be part of the uh, United States any longer, they should have the right to declare their independence and go their own way. Uh, That is the principle of self-determination. And no matter what the reason, if California doesn't think the United States is leftist enough, well, then it should be able to go and create its little socialist utopia out in the West Coast and join hands with Nevada and and, uh, Oregon and Washington State and maybe even parts of Canada. And there's some talk about that, creating this... uh, this uh, you know unified state that includes parts of Canada. So in fact, you can the Canadian provinces can secede from Canada if they just have a vote on it. So I mean, in some ways, the Canadian Constitution is preferable to our own because it expressly states that secession can happen. 
so uh, we look at um, this uh, California case, and uh, Jack brings up the uh, the case of Texas, the case of Texas v. White, and how supposedly this said that uh, the states could not secede unless there was an out, uh, except through revolution, rebellion, or consent of the states. So essentially what the Texas v. White decision said is that, well, you know, if all the states agree to allow a state to go, well, then that can happen. Of course, that's not the definition of sovereignty. A sovereign state can do what it wants at any time. The people, the sovereign people of the sovereign state can do what they want at any time. They don't need the permission of the rest of the states. But even under that particular uh, umbrella, if we have to look at that, I'm sure the other states would not allow this. And I think that's unfortunate. What we've, what's happened in America is we've become so interested in nationalism, so interested in a top-down solution to every issue that we can't see beyond our own, you know, our own nose, so to speak, uh, that perhaps we would be better in a situation where you have some balkanization. Uh, this was brought up several times in the antebellum period, even the postbellum period. In fact, uh, I think it's pretty clear that the problems of the United States have not been created by quote-unquote states' rights, but by nationalism. We should look at history and turn it on its head. And in fact, that's what the nationalists have done. They said, well, all the issues that we've had, it's all because these states' rights people are just blocking the national will. That's not it. In fact, what's happening most of the time is that the national will is representative of a section or a small group of people, and that's not really the national will. So the best thing to do would be to have a decentralized state where the people themselves can live their own lives and the way they see fit in their own political communities. It's actually nationalism that has been to the detriment of peace and stability in the United States, not the states themselves. The states themselves have always been uh, proponents of stability and the accepted order in those particular states. I mean, look, Alabama's not telling California how to live, and they shouldn't, just as California shouldn't tell Alabama how to live. And Massachusetts is not necessarily telling, uh, you know, Michigan how to live, and it shouldn't. Uh, Now, we could debate whether Massachusetts does that or not. They've done it throughout their entire uh, political life. But uh, the question is, what should these states, what kind of power should these states have over other states? And that really is the issue at hand here. What you have happening is that leftists, leftists are upset that they think there's going to be top-down government that Donald Trump is going to come in and completely destroy everything they want. Well, welcome to the other side, because that's exactly what conservatives were saying in 2008. And, of course, conservatives were all painted as racist traitors for saying, look, we want to get out of this union because Obama's going to come in and destroy us. Well, uh, I I would say that, uh, you know, the United States has already been destroyed. Uh, Obama couldn't have done anything that hadn't already been done by George W. Bush and Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush and on down the line. America's been gone for a long time. But the fact is, what we need to recognize is that what really should happen here is we should have an honest adult conversation about the merits of decentralization. Should we, as adult people, say, you know what, Uh, I may not like the way that you're living your life, but you know what, you have a right to live your life that way. And if you can have a political community that's big enough and decide that this is the way you're going to live your life, go your own way and do it. Nobody's telling you you can't. Why can't we have a, an economic cooperation? And that's it. We can trade with you. 
Uh, you, but you can do your own thing in your own social sphere. If you want to have your socialist little socialist utopia out there in, in California, and heck, why not have Northern California break off if they don't want to be part of Southern California? I mean, California could have more than one state. There's actually a discussion to have six states of California. Why not that? I know I, ha- I received a lot of criticism because I said in another podcast, on my own podcast, that uh, you know Texas could be more than one state. Well, it could. In fact, Alabama could be more than one state. It's too big. Four million people in Alabama, that's too big to really have any type of uh, representative government. Our representative ratio is 30,000 to 1 in the state of Alabama, but uh, perhaps that's too large, particularly for the, for the issues that the state has to deal with. So maybe we need two states of Alabama. Why not? What's to say that the states have to be so large geographically? Why can't you just think about it in terms of the people deciding how large, how large the state should be and the borders of that particular state? We know that states can be divided up through the Constitution. They just have to have the permission of that particular state and, of course, that of Congress. But if we could divide the states even smaller, this is what the Institute is all about, rethinking these ideas. What is the ideal size of a state? Is it, uh, you know, 4 million people? Is it 400,000 people? Uh, you know, should we have these, these small—what what kind of power should the state have? Uh, you know, this is the Southern political tradition just carried forward into the 21st century. And so California discussing independence from the United States uh, is a welcome thing because maybe, again, we're going to have an adult conversation about these issues without being painted as racist or sexist or traitors. Uh, you know, people in Alabama may not think that people in California are, uh, are great people. They, uh, they're godless, uh, you know, they, they don't uh, follow the, the, the social norms that people in Alabama would advocate. But again, this is their life. If they want to live that way, fine. Just don't tell Alabama how to live, and we won't tell you how to live. And I think that's the key to all of this. And I know when people say, wow, this is just, this is going to lead to war within the United States. Why? Why does it have to? It doesn't have to. That's a, that's a cop-out. That's a, that's a fear tactic that's often used to think, to make people think that, should these states have more autonomy, there would be natural conflict between them and then warfare. I don't see California going to war with anybody. Uh, I don't think the, uh, the uh, stoners in California would have the initiative enough to do anything like that. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that um, overall, this would be a healthy discussion to have in America. And that's one byproduct of the election that I'm, I'm happy to see. Let's have a discussion on the left about secession. We welcome it because at the end of the day, a lot of people on the right, particularly more people more of a libertarian bent, don't want to tell California what to do. And if you don't want to live in the Republic of California, you can move out of California and come over where some, somewhere else where you're going to be valued as a person who wants to live a different kind of life than the Republic of California would advocate. So again, this is a great piece by Jack and um, one that I think is is uh, important to read. Now, that said, we actually had two pieces this week on the Electoral College. The first was by Dave Benner, and, and uh, Dave is, uh, lives in Minnesota, and uh, he's written a little book entitled Compact of, uh, of the Republic, uh, The League of the States and the Constitution. And so he talks about the Constitution quite a bit in his local community, and he's, he's thinking locally and acting locally. Uh, but he's also writing, he, he loves the Southern political tradition. He likes to talk about it and, and write about it. And he brings up the fact that after Donald Trump's election, uh, you had several, quote-unquote, legal scholars who have said that 
the entire uh, electoral college system is based on slavery. Well, this is ridiculous. Uh, in fact, it, you're cherry-picking, as he brings up, you're cherry-picking James Madison to come to that conclusion. Uh, the idea of the electoral college was to ensure that the states were part of the process, and this is the exact same thing that uh, Ryan Walters wrote later in the week uh, on Friday in his piece, Why the Electoral College. So put these two pieces together, and what you have is a comprehensive view of the Electoral College. Simply put, uh, the reason we have the Electoral College is because the founding generation wanted the states to be included in this process. Uh, it doesn't matter who wins the popular vote. That's actually irrelevant. Uh, and it, uh, actually, um, I was listening to uh, Tom Woods, or I was, I was having a conversation with Tom Woods and, uh, and Kevin Goodsman about this issue today, in fact. Uh, for an, for an upcoming podcast uh, show of the Tom Wood Show, and uh, Tom brought up the analogy, and I think it's great that uh, you know he used to say that the electoral college is like the World Series, in that you know the first that one team could win the first three games of the World Series eight to one, and then the next team, the other team could win the next four games of the World Series and win the World Series by scores of two to one, and no one would say, well, the one team outscored the other, so they should be the rightful winner of the World Series. No one would say that. It's whoever wins the most games. And in this case, it's whoever really wins the most states, as long as those states carry enough electoral college votes to do it. And so this, this puts the states into the heart of the process. Uh, and in fact, if no one gets a majority in electoral college, the, ele the election is thrown to the House of Representatives where it is decided by the states. Each state gets one vote. So again, this is the states choosing the president. This is the way it was designed. And the electors we're supposed to have a fairly high level of independence. Now, most of the states don't do that nowadays. They have uh, rules set in place where electors can't go against the vote of the, the uh, majority of that state, the popular vote. And um, this was first started, we first saw this in actually the 1800 election. But the fact is, uh, the idea was that these electors who were supposed to be uh, wiser people than uh, just your, your average voter— would, would then choose someone who would be a good president, someone who would represent uh, the United States and represent the federal government in a way that would reflect uh, a high-minded opinion of government. And I dare say that the presidents that we had, particularly the first five, uh, even John Adams, who I'm not a particular fan of, would be far preferable to almost, almost anyone else in the last hundred years. Uh, the fact is, you know, we had better men uh, because we had a political system at that time which allowed for better men to serve in the government. Now, not all of them were good men. Not all of them were great men. Uh, some of them were, you know, run-of-the-mill men. But for the most part, we had uh, fairly good statesmen and uh, north and south. Uh, it's it's uh, only in the last, uh, you know, 150 years that we've started seeing a decline in the character and 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 uh, who's serving in Congress, uh, and I think you know the the Reconstruction period was uh, was awful for that, uh, as we saw more and more corruption start popping up in in the federal government. It's not that it wasn't there before because it was, but not to the extent we saw in the late nineteenth century forward. And look at the corruption in government today. So when you look at this electoral college, there's no way. I mean, in fact, uh, many of the delegates, as both Benner and Walters point out were uh, from non-slaveholding states who supported the Electoral College. So if this thing is all about slavery, then why did those men support it? Why did people like Elbridge Gerry support it from Massachusetts or even Roger Sherman? Why did he support it? 
Uh, he's from Connecticut. Uh, why would these men from these uh, non-slaveholding states support an electoral college? Well, because they thought it was the best system. It kept the states represented in the system. Uh, it was anti-democratic in that uh, the people directly were not electing the president because that would lead to an elected monarchy. As George Mason said, this is a disaster. If we get that, we're done. And that's essentially what we have today, particularly if we get to a point where the Electoral College is the only thing that matters in selecting a president. And there are lots of people out there who would love that situation where all we have is the popular vote selecting the president of the United States. So when we think about the Electoral College, it should always be sold on the fact that what this does is ensure that uh, the states themselves are represented in this presidential election system, not just the people. Because if that was the case, there's actually a really good map out there right now. Uh, the New York Times, of all places, put this out, showing the amount of territory that Donald Trump won compared to the amount of territory that Hillary Clinton won. Hillary Clinton's winning little enclaves, like little islands across the United States where you have uh, just cities that are getting large numbers of people. So who really cares what the majority is in California? Donald Trump didn't even try in California. So who cares if Hillary Clinton won by, you know, 3 million votes in California? The fact is she didn't win enough states. So, uh, you know, there is a push, and I think it's going to continue, to try to have the Electoral College abolished. And there actually is a proposal out there called the National Popular Vote Initiative, which is looking to do this. It's an end around without actually amending the Constitution. It's a very bad idea, but if enough states that have you know, 270 electoral college votes sign on to this thing, then the electoral college will become irrelevant because uh, whoever wins the popular vote would then get those 270 electoral college votes, and that would be a disaster. So I hope that doesn't happen, but you never know. What we need to do is get enough people to believe in the electoral college, and particularly in those states that have tried to do this, and repeal that legislation, block it from ever taking effect. Uh, that is the only way. It's the only way, uh, if we want to stay in this system, that the states will ever have any control over the executive branch. And um, I don't know if there's much, if I have much hope that this is going to be the case, but this is why we do the Abbeville Institute. This is why we do the podcast. This is why we try to keep this information out there so that people are aware of various opinions about this issue and other issues that deal with the uh, Southern political tradition. And, uh, you know, the, the man that proposed the Electoral College was from the South, Charles Carroll of Carrollton. Uh, he was a, a Southern planter and uh, from Maryland. I know that a lot of people don't think Maryland is a Southern state, but in 1787 it most assuredly was a Southern state. And Charles Carroll was very much a Southerner in, in many ways. So um, you look at this Electoral College system, and it's, it's a very important to the fabric of this federation of states that we have. And if we forget that, uh, we're in real trouble in the future. Uh, that said, one of the things that's happened in this Trump wave into the White House is a resurgence of populism. I've seen several headlines about this. Well, uh, you know, the rise of, of populism is, is leading to these type of elections around the world. So it was, it's a good thing to understand what populism is. Uh, what are we talking about here? And how is this important? And so on Tuesday, I'm sorry, on Wednesday, we ran a piece by Clyde Wilson entitled Up at the Forks of the Creek in Search of American Populism. And this is an excellent essay. It's, it's uh, about uh, 17 years old now. And what's really interesting about it is that 17 years ago, Clyde was saying, look, if we don't have this, uh, we're not going to have um, 
we don't have this type of, of backbone among the people, we're not going to have a real populist revolt in America. And what he's trying to do is explain what this populist revolt was really all about. And essentially put it in a simple terms, uh, the populist revolt is about the people. And the populists are not progressives. The populists were looking to maintain an agrarian economic order, uh, one that's based on faith and family, that goes back to Thomas Jefferson and John Taylor of Caroline. And so if you understand that, if you understand this is the case, uh, you'll understand that American populism is quite different than uh, what people are talking about in Europe. Uh, European populism uh, is... Uh, is quite different. Um, it's not the same type of ideological, uh, ideological, uh, you know, situation. I, 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 the the underpinnings of European populism are vastly different. Uh, European populists are far far more left wing than American populists, and that's because American populists are generally rooted in something traditional order. And if you look at, for example, uh, the speech that William Jennings Bryan made in 1896, where he talked about farmers being nailed to a cross of gold, that had appeal to farmers because they were traditionally Christian people, and they could see themselves in that very Christ-like position of being nailed to a cross of gold. It was the New, New England and Northeastern banking interests that were destroying them. And in some ways, these populists of the, of the West— figured out that they had chosen the wrong side in the 1860s. And this is a key to understanding antebellum American history as well. Calhoun actually knew at one point that the South was sunk because they had lost the alliance with the West. And people like Henry Clay knew that if they could get the West and the North aligned, that they would be a very powerful force, particularly when it came to economic nationalism. Now, Henry Clay was a Republican, but he was a national Republican, and he favored economic nationalism. And so that was the difference between someone like uh, you know, John Taylor of Caroline and Henry Clay of Kentucky. Uh, Caroline, Virginia, of course, for John Taylor, and Henry Clay of Kentucky. Now, of course, Clay being born in Virginia, but moved on to Kentucky. Uh, so it's this economic nationalism. And when that, when that alliance was forged, and it was done essentially under the guise of a, an issue uh, like slavery. Uh, I mean, it's one thing that, that was brought up, and it was brought up for political reasons. You know, the question should always be answered, why slavery? Uh, and uh, if we can answer that question honestly, slavery was used as a political issue. Uh, it, was, it was known that the West was hostile to the institution of slavery. They were hostile to black Americans even living in their states. And so if you, could, if you could use that issue to split this alliance, this agrarian alliance between the West and the South, you would create a very powerful situation where the North, the Northeast, could win elections. And that's exactly what happened. But these farmers figured out in the late 19th century that, oops, um, there's something going on here. Uh, we have cut a raw deal. These, uh, these New England and Northeastern bankers are not interested in us. They're not interested in us at all. In fact, what they're interested in is lining their own pockets. And so what you get is a type of American populism that's based in rural America, tradition, order, and farming. 
And so as you move forward in time, this is what you see with the 19th century populists and the 21st century populists. What we have in 21st century populism are people who are very traditional. They're conservative, socially oftentimes. Uh, they believe in um, uh, an American order that is not pro-banking. Uh, and so they want something different. And so you have this, and in some ways, you know, Trump was able to capture that in this 2016 election. Uh, now he's talking about factory work, but there was a time when it was thought that agrarian populists and industrial workers needed to get together because that would create a very strong and viable political order. Uh, if you look at the film uh, The Wizard of Oz, for example, the book The Wizard of Oz, you have the characters in that film. You have uh, the scarecrow, which is the farmer, and the tin man, which is the industrial worker, and they both need things. The, the farmer needs a brain because he's too stupid to understand that he's being taken advantage of. The tin man needs a heart because he needs to start aligning himself with the farmer, and then both, the lion, both need courage. And so it's that courage that's been missing. And I think what you saw in 2016 is finally, finally, people had the courage to say, you know what, I don't care what names are hurled at me by these leftist extremists. I'm going to support uh, a, a brand of conservatism that's about American workers, farmers, factory workers. We're going to get people back to work and interested again in the backbone of America. We're not going to do things for the, for the, uh, you know, the, the political class. We're not going to do things for the, for the commercial class. We're going to do things for ourselves. Now, of course, uh, we can talk about you know, what's going to happen and whether anything's happened or not. Who knows? But this was the idea they were sold. We're going to, we're, Trump was saying we're going to get you people back to work. It was an economic nationalism, yes, but it was also a populist message. Get people back to work. We want to, we want to help you with these social issues uh, these, you know, some of these things are, are detrimental to your lifestyle, and so we're going to try to get the federal government out of the way. Uh, we're, we're not going to make it as oppressive, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, when you look at American populism, you'll find that it has to be rooted in the land. It has to. It can't come from anywhere else. Uh, even in a modern industrial society, you have rural areas supporting this, this brand of conservatism more than anything else. This is why Trump won so many states. You know, Hillary Clinton's going to win some urban areas, but overall, throughout the states, you're going to have Donald Trump cleaning up, and he did because of that. Uh, and so, as Clyde concludes the piece, and he says, Populism, as I have defined it, is still deeply ingrained in the American character, though it grows more diluted, perhaps, with each passing decade. It is always faced with John Taylor's dilemma, which means its success will always be temporary and limited. If one bad agenda and establishment are defeated, there will always be others waiting plausibly in the wings to manipulate the state. This is the eternal dilemma of popular government. Such a dilemma is, of course, infinitely preferable to those presented by any other kind of government. To be successful, he says, populism does not need the established respectable leadership of a national political party. It needs wild men like Pat Buchanan who are ready to kick over the traces and call a spade a spade. And this is exactly what happened in 2016. It's exactly what happened. Pat Buchanan was setting the stage back in uh, the early 2000s. And, of course, thinking about running against, uh, you know, George H.W. Bush. Uh, so he was, he was doing this at a time when it was needed, but he was ahead of the curve. Trump was able to capitalize on that curve now because 
the alternative was so much worse than what he presented. Now, whether Trump's going to stick to his word and do what he says, I mean, who knows? But Clyde also continues, it needs the support and assertion of at least some states and some state authorities, which it has today. The states are what we have gotten, the best instrument we have for checking federal power. It will take overwhelming populist sentiment, which is possible in the West and possible less so in the South, to begin to counter federal oppressions. Uh, So, what are we facing here? We've got this now. It actually happened. 17 years after he wrote this piece, it's happened. But the thing is, we have to capitalize on it. And you have to hold political leaders' feet to the fire. And if we can do that, then uh, we stand a chance. And that actually gets into the, to the piece on Thursday, The Media's Failed Southern Strategy. This is by Gail Jarvis. And essentially what he's saying is that, look, people didn't care. People didn't care about being called names anymore. They didn't care about the left going on their rant saying, well, all these people are just racist and sexist and homophobes. Because you know what? In some ways... Those slurs have lost their steam. They've lost their muscle because they've been used so often. People are so tired of it, and they don't believe it anymore. Just because somebody supports a position does not mean they're racist or sexist or, uh, you know, a homophobe. Just because they support positions that say, you know what, Uh, I I like traditional America. Uh, And this, of course, translates into the Confederate flag, uh, and, of course— you know, um, people are trying to throw that under the bus. And as, as Jarvis says, although leftists think their opinions are facts, they cannot manipulate the public as they once did. Also, public opinions have lifespans, so an overzealous media cannot continue to shove its opinions down society's throat indefinitely. Southerners should be encouraged that a substantial segment of the public is no longer swayed by media's demeaning of the South and its heritage. Hopefully, the media's attempts to have all vestiges of the Confederacy trash will also fizzle out. But this is important. People are getting tired of political correctness. That's why we had an entire conference on this. People are getting tired of it. They don't believe it as much anymore. They can't. What they're seeing is that, you know what? This has lost all its muscle. It's, it's, it's tired. Nobody listens. Uh, everyone's a racist if they just don't support your agenda on the left. And so this term has been used so much, racist, 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 homophobe, homophobe, you know, uh, whatever it is, sexist. It's been used so much that for the majority of Americans, they're just like, yeah, whatever. I don't care if you call me names anymore because you know what? I want my country. And I don't really believe those things that you're saying, but you know what? I'm willing to take the heat because I want to say that it's time for a change. And whether that's Donald Trump or whether that's secession or whether that's decentralization or nullification— This is what's happening in America, and it's all there. If you put it all together, this is what you see, and this is why the Abbeville Institute is so important, because we've been talking about these things for a long time. I heard on the radio the other day that Rush Limbaugh took him 30 years to come to the position of understanding what the political uh, elites are, the political class. Well, you know what? The people that we put on our website, they've been saying this for 50 years. Uh, I'm glad that Limbaugh, Mr. Limbaugh, is on board finally and understanding the political class. We'll see how long that lasts. But the fact is, people like Clyde Wilson and Emmy Bradford and Richard Weaver and Russell Kirk and go on down the line. Uh, you know, you can look at Southern statesmen going back into the early 20th century, the late 19th century, the middle of the 19th century, the early 19th century. We're saying John Taylor of Caroline. We're saying we don't need the political elites. 
the political class to determine what we're doing. We are populists. We believe in tradition, order, and agrarianism. This goes back to the 19th century. We've been saying these things for years. Of course, the Institute being around since 2002 has been saying these things until we're hoarse. It's finally time that people are listening. And so when you share our material, when you share this podcast, when you share our written material, when you go out there and you say, look, you know what? This is, this is about the American political tradition, which the South exemplified longer than anywhere else. That is the key to all of it. And if we can do that, we're going to be in good shape in the future moving forward. Until next time, good day. Good day.